Hi everyone, today is October 2nd, 2014. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Sam Sober, Samuel or Sam? Sam. Sam Sober, who is Assistant Professor of Biology at Emory with an affiliation in the Biomedical Engineering Program at Georgia Tech. Hi, Sam. Hi. Um, around the uh, around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And I skipped the part about what your lab does, so I'll do that now. Sure. Um, his lab combines uh, psychophysics, neurophysiology, muscle biomechanics to define learning rules in the vocal system of songbirds as a model system for understanding larger principles for how the brain controls complex behaviors in complex sensory environments. Does that kind of cover it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Okay. So. Um, your work looks at uh, kind of generally at how the brain decides which errors are going to drive learning, which is um, more complicated, I guess, in, than one would initially think, since at least in, in vocal uh, learning, adapting to every single perturbation in a noisy environment could be could be really problematic. Mm -hmm. So you've got like a, a very cool paper out. You said like this, it's this week, is it? So which the one are you talking paper, about? The, the current paper. Oh wow, uh, there's, uh, there's so many papers uh, that are this week. How can I choose? <laughs> the, the behavior one with young birds, that, that one? That's the one. Yeah, and Frontiers and Integrative Neuroscience. That's, that's the, that's one. Just that's the one that's the most recent one in PubMed. I don't know yeah. about any other. You may have other knowledge of <laughs> papers. Um, but uh, so this this is a paper, it's, it's, so it defines this incredibly elegant computational principle that predicts vocal adaptation um, dynamics for all phases of a bird's life, mm -hmm. both during juvenile learning as well as in adulthood, when song motifs have been totally crystallized, right? Mm -hmm. And it's all based on variability, and that's yep. like a crazy huge story. So can mm -hmm. you talk us a little bit through some of the, some of these ideas and, sure. and tell us that story? Well, yeah, so like you alluded to, I mean, I think one of the big questions that motivates us is basically how does the brain decide when and how to use sensory feedback to, um, to adjust behavior? And I mean, as I mentioned in my seminar, you know, the brain has this really difficult problem to solve, which is that you know, for complex learned behavior, the brain has to rely on sensory feedback to detect and correct errors. But the problem is that sensory feedback is really unreliable. So, you know, environments are noisy, there can be noise in neural circuits, you know, in the periphery or, or, or central circuits. So, you know, the way I think about it is the brain is always having to decide, you know, should I trust this piece of sensory feedback um, and then use it to, to adapt my output. So, you know, the and you know, this story is now spread over two or three papers, but you know, what we initially described was that, you know, first of all, if you take an adult songbird who's already learned how to sing, um, you put tiny little headphones on him um, to manipulate how he hears himself. If you introduce an error, and the error that we usually use is to shift the pitch of how he hears himself, um, he'll correct it. He'll correct for that error by changing his voice. Then it turns out that they, birds will correct small errors much more quickly and robustly than larger errors, and for a certain error size, basically the, the learning response falls to zero. So there's a certain error size above which birds just don't correct anymore. Then we saw in sort of older adult birds that the point at which birds stop correcting their errors is once what they hear falls outside of the distribution of how they're used to hearing themselves sing. So you can think of there as being a, you know, sort of a prior distribution. Um, and, you know, what it looks like is that, you know, birds are, you know, in some sense weighting sensory feedback by the probability or the likelihood that it could have come from his prior distribution. So first we showed that that was true in adults, and then with the new paper that you mentioned, we you know first show that younger birds, so these are birds, it's, they're not, not right when they begin to vocalize, but sort of around the time that they are 
crystallizing their song. So they're still much more variable than adult songbirds. First of all, that those birds. So can yeah. we just back up? So yeah, that sure. first paper kind of established this inverse um, error. Yeah, the 2012 which one. means that big errors are really not driving learning. That's right? correct. In, so in then the question became about in learning, how do you know these 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 younger birds have this huge distribution of pitches that they're dealing with because yeah. their songs all. So how do they learn? So that was what what couched the second. Yeah, that's okay. that, that, that's right. I just wanted to get that. Straight sure, thanks. Um, and so what it turns out is that you know so younger. I mean, and th this is not totally unexpected given work in other species. Young birds are much better at learning than older birds. So for the same sensory error, there's much you know greater and more rapid learning. But it turns out that you know the same sort of mathematical principle that we described you know with the 2012 paper can fully explain the difference between younger birds and older birds. So you know, and this is putting it very strongly, but you know. An interpretation is that the reason young birds learn faster is that they're more variable. They have sort of a wider prior distribution. And, you know, if, as it seems to be the case, you know, birds are weighting sensory errors based on the probability that they produce, you know, that piece of sensory output before, or motor output before, that can explain the, the age difference. So I am, I'm trying to figure out what this, I mean, these distributions are, are cool for making predictions sure. and everything, but I was just trying to uh, visualize what's happening in the bird's brain on Absolutely. a syllable-by-syllable -syllable basis. Okay. So, yeah. so basically, if uh, I, I guess it's a yes or no decision being made every time the animal hears a syllable and it is shifted. And it says, this is shifted so much I'm going to disregard it. Right. This is not shifted too much. Is, is that what you're imagining? Well, yes and no. So I mean, it's a podcast, so I'll be I'll be blunt. I think the biggest weakness of our work on this so far is that we don't know either what the neural implementation is or what the trial by trial algorithm is. So you know what's in all the papers is that you know we can sort of heuristically predict what's going to happen at the end of the experiment based on the distribution at the beginning of the experiment, but we don't know much about how a single error is processed, and that's really what we want to know. So you know you described a model in which there's a binary decision, you know, trust it or don't trust it. You can also write down a model that works just as well where it, you know, it's not binary but, you know, there's some sort of, you know, scalar weight, some sort of weighting, yeah, some thing. sort of, yeah. Or, you know, there's also sort of, you know, you can also come up with other algorithms where, yeah, you can come up with a bunch of different algorithms that will do the job. And I'm what sort we'd of like, interested in what they are because I'm not coming up with a bunch of them. Right. Okay, good question. So there's, so one possibility is very much what you described where you've got some, you've got an error and you're weighting it by its probability that it could have come from the, um, uh, could have come from the prior, or come, and then you know you have some scalar or some you know predefined step in motor space that you take based on the answer the answer to that. Another possibility is that, and so that would be an error that's very much you know computed on a single trial basis. You know, so you evaluate one piece of sensory information, compare it to your prior, and decide what to do. And so, and so when the shift is small, uh -huh. then on most trials, right. I am using it. Yeah. And as the shift gets bigger, I'm using it less and less often. And finally, sure. when the shift's big enough, I You're just... You're not using it at all. Don't it. Yeah, absolutely. You can also think of another model where, you know, the bird isn't necessarily making a new decision each syllable or each time it sings something, but is 
basically reweighting sensor, you know, auditory feedback compared to all of the other streams of sensory input. So actually, for my PhD, um, I looked at human arm movements and specifically how people weight visual and proprioceptive inputs. Um, you know, when, when deciding how to move their arms. And I think the main finding from my dissertation was that people can really rapidly recalibrate the extent to which they're relying on vision versus proprioception, for example, based on the parameters of the task. So it could be, for example, that birds aren't doing anything so fancy as computing, you know, the probability of every single piece of sensory information, but they're like, you know, things have sounded funny to me for the last 10 minutes, therefore I'm going to rely more on proprioception and less on audition, for example. And proprioceptive feedback has been shown in a couple really nice papers to be important for, for vocal control in, in birds and humans too. So there's that, yeah, so there's so you can you can do it either with sort of a trial by trial kind of, you know, reinforcement learning algorithm, you can do it with sort of a more sort of spread out in time sensory re-rating mechanism and you can combine those things in sort of any way that you want to. And we, you know, and then for the second thing is, you know, how is this, how is this all working in the brain? I was actually talking to some students over lunch about this. So there's a couple of ways to think about it. And, you know, I think in general in neuroscience, you can, you know, sometimes you come up with these observations where, you know, sort of we, we the neuroscientists can come up with some sort of algorithm that explains, you know, the input-output relationship or, you know, the, the relationship between the statistics of sensory input and motor output. So one possibility is that the brain is, ex you know, the, the songbird's brain in this case, is explicitly computing all of these probabilities and doing something very similar to, you know, what we do when we write down equations. Um, that's one possibility. Another possibility, uh, and this is actually, um, so we have a review article that's going to be coming out in neuroscience in the next couple months, where we actually, you know, among lots of other things, talk about two possible neural models for how this could be implemented. So, and what we've been thinking about is how this might work in, in sort of auditory association areas in the songbird. So these areas have been shown to be, you know, really exquisitely tuned for the acoustics of a bird's own song. Um, so you can imagine one model where, you know, for example, so, you know, these neurons, they respond selectively to a bird's own song, but as far as I know, nobody's ever just shifted the pitch of a bird's own song and looked at to what extent these neurons are, are pitch-tuned. And so furthermore, if you have a population that's really, you know, tuned to a bird's own song in, you know, pitch as well as other parameters, and is used to recognize a bird's own song or to detect errors, uh, you know, errors in vocal production, if you shift the pitch outside of the prior, then maybe you're no longer activating that same population of neurons anymore. Right. So it's, less, it's left its range. It yeah, it's it's, it's missing the sensory filter. So you can imagine that you know the bird never really has to compute a probability because it's being computed implicitly based on this higher order sensory filter. And you know alternately, you know, and not incompatibly with that, um, there's other papers, you know, very nice work from other labs showing that some of these auditory processing areas are also getting you know if not motor and motor related singing related motor-related inputs. So it could be that, you know, the other thing that's important, or another thing that's important, is that there has to be some congruence between, you know, the expected auditory feedback, you know, based on the, the you know, an efference copy or, the, you know, a copy of the motor command and what's actually being received. So, I don't know. We, and, you know, this is something that, I, you know, our lab may be moving towards this. We, we have a lot of things we're thinking about. But, you know, we've really taken sort of a motor, you know, we've been looking at sensory motor adaptation, you know, I think in our physiological studies, you know, with muscle and, and you know, bird primary motor cortex, you know, really looking at it from the motor end and, you know, sort of shifting that to, towards also looking at sensory processing. So, so do you think, uh, I was, do you think that, uh, 
proprioception is some explanation for why there's incomplete learning? Yeah, so that's, I mean, you know, I, so incomplete learning, just, just to define it, is, you know, you shift or perturb sensory feedback from, a moda from one sensory modality um, and look at how much, you know, the animal compensates for that. And in our pitch shift stuff in songbirds and also in pretty much every other set study of sensory motor learning that's ever been done, learning is incomplete. And one of the, you know, really common explanations for that is that, you know, the brain is getting, you know, really redundant sensory information across modalities. So, you know, so obviously, you know, the one, the one we've been talking about is you shift, you know, auditory information and, you know, there's, you know, proprioception is not being altered, so maybe the bird's trusting that. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the difficulties of this kind of experiment is that, you know, we have the we have that which we are manipulating, which is, you know, pitch and auditory information, and then absolutely everything else which we're not manipulating. So yes, it could be that, you know, all of the sort of remainder, all the you know, the the, the incompleteness is due to, you know, proprioception, which of course is a bunch of senses multiplexed together. You know, also, you know, people talk about, you know, I think this is reasonable, you know, the brain may be generating its own internal predictions of what it just did, you know, which is different from proprioception and different from auditory feedback. And so, you know, I'd love to measure the proprioceptive component. So how is it, how is it different? Like, what does it mean to have a prediction of what you did with its, if you say the proprioception is kind of everything else? Is it, sorry, what was, what was that? If everything, a uh, prediction of what you just did, right? Uh, what is there in terms of what you did, rather other than the auditory and proprioceptive? Well, I mean, so you've got. I mean, don't forget, you know, you've got potential sources of errors in, you know, sensory encoding and proprioceptive, you know, and any kind of sensory encoding. So, you know, the idea that you would use, you know, a, a forward model to generate some prediction of what the sensory, you know, what the sensory feedback ought to be. You know, which is what I'm what I mean when I'm saying what you did. Um, yeah, I mean, what would be great is if we could provide a proprioceptive manipulation. You know, we could trick the bird into thinking he was feeling via proprioception what it feels like to sing at a different pitch. That would be great, but I don't I don't know how to do that. So I'm not. Let me just make sure I understand what you guys are talking about because <laughs> I'm not sure. But it sounds to me uh, like one of the things you might be saying is that when you adjust the pitch mm -hmm. to make it match the auditory perception right, you're going out of adjustment in proprioception. So proprioception is saying, go right. back, go back, as auditory is saying, keep going. Forward. And you sure. end up at some kind of equilibrium Absolutely. between the two errors. That's what you're saying? Yeah. And so that would explain why, no matter how big the change is, uh -huh. the absolute shift was always about the same. So the absolute shift was, was a little less than half a tone. Yeah, so, right. So I, okay, so I, I think what Charlie's referring to is, so there's a plot, I mean, this is in the papers if you want to go look, but for several conditions that we test, the absolute change in vocal pitch winds up being approximately the same, even, excuse me, even though it's a very different fraction of, um, of the imposed sensory error. So I just want to point this out. I often get asked this question. That is basically a coincidence. So there is no absolute ceiling, or sorry, we are not close to the absolute ceiling of how much a bird could change its voice. So this is you know, a supplemental figure in our 2009 paper. If you give like a gradual I staircase of errors. That's where I go wrong. I should read this up. Yeah, uh, nobody does, but uh, that's okay. But yeah, so if you now give- Listen a, to the podcast. Yeah, right, it's multimedia. <laughs> um, so if you give a bird like a staircase of small errors, you can drive gigantic uh, changes okay, in vocal okay. output. So it's, it's not that. Uh -huh. I mean, so, the, so that means it isn't a conflict between the proprioceptive and the... Uh, well, 
I mean, keep in mind that you know, when we do the staircase, it's still incomplete. Like it's just it's you know, fifty percent of a really gigantic perturbation rather than fifty percent of a smaller perturbation. It's still incomplete, and it still can be explained and you're, by. You're doing that in juveniles because that's the point when they're calibrating their proprioception, right? Right. No, sorry, no. Everything except for the the paper that just came out this year has been in older adults, or adults. So what about, I mean, so, so what, why would, does proprioception matter as much in the juveniles when they're, when presume, I mean, is that right that they're calibrating their... I, I, I don't think that's known. I mean, so that there's been, I don't want to say there's only been one, there have been a very small number of studies looking at proprioceptions. There's a, 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 a classic one where, this is not, not my work, um, where they, you know, the experimenters introduced a puff of air into the air sac, so birds have air sacs in addition to lungs, um, and what they showed is that there's this very rapid adjustment in terms of the muscle contraction that, that you know, helps control um, air pressure. So the idea is that that perturbation was a proprioceptive perturbation, and there was a compensation for it in terms of the error command, or sorry, in terms of the motor command. Now, what would be a great experiment that I don't know that anybody's done would be to, you know, ask whether juvenile birds, you know, weight proprioception differently, which would be, you know, which would be to say, do they generate a smaller or larger motor compensation for that? You know, you'd have to somehow make that proprioceptive perturbation the same, which is hard to figure out how to do. But yeah, I should also say the, you know, the, the, you know, the stuff that just came out and that I talked about earlier, in younger birds, these are not, so usually when people say juveniles, they mean, you know, much younger than what we're looking at. For methodological reasons, we basically, you know, because of how we do the headphones experiments, we had to wait until song was well-formed enough that we could identify syllables repeatedly. So it's more like with the, young, the young condition in that paper, it's like around the time of crystallization. It's not like really young juveniles. So just mention the headphones for listeners just for a second. Sure. Um, so uh, when I was a postdoc, well, here. When I was a graduate student, um, I worked on human sensory motor adaptation, um, you know, manipulating sense visual feedback from people making arm movements. Um, and that's really nice. You can introduce a, you know, a known visual perturbation and study learning and, you know, neat stuff like that. Um, and I wanted something like that in songbirds. I wanted something where we, you know, instead of looking at the developmental process of song acquisition, where pretty much every acoustic property is changing altogether, it's really complicated. Um, I wanted some analog of the human visual motor shift experiment where we could perturb a, you know, a single parameter by a known amount in an adult animal to look at learning. And that led me to, you know, with you know, along with my colleagues, develop a um, miniature set of miniature headphones for songbirds that are basic. It's basically virtual auditory feedback, so we can you know effectively replace a bird's natural auditory feedback with a manipulated version um, <coughs> online. There's a great visual, yeah. yeah. There's a great visual. I was thinking like a bunch of birds with those on singing, we are yeah, the yeah, world. Yeah. It's only about, like, to be fair, it's only about a third of the stuff that we do in our lab is birds with headphones, but it's like definitely the most photogenic part of our research. <laughs> so in all of this, there's the target song. Sure. T talk about that. Where, sure. Where, 
what are we talking about when we talk about this this representation that just kind of lives yep. there, guiding everything? Yeah. So this you know this question has a really long history in you know the field of songbird neurobiology, and you know to sum it up, um, a bunch of nice beha- really great behavioral work has shown that when songbirds are young, um, they memorize the acoustics of an adult song tutor, usually the bird's father, although it doesn't have to be. And then later, through a process of sensor of, pra- of vocal practice, they learn how to produce a very, very close copy of that tutor's song. And the key thing there is that they don't need to have the tutor's song around as a reference. They're, they're doing it from memory, essentially, reducing the difference between their vocal output and this target, or some people call it a template, of what they, uh, want, what they want to produce. So, and then, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, work trying to figure out where does that live in the brain and sort of how is it expressed. And, you know, in our, the way we wind up thinking about it in our experiments is that, you know, we can take an adult, we can do weird stuff to his auditory feedback for weeks and weeks and, you know, shift the pitch and the bird will change his vocal pitch to, um, to compensate. And then we take the pitch manipulation away and the bird brings his pitch right back to where it was when he start, when we started the experiment. So what that tells us is that you know, you know, adult songbirds have you really do have this really well, you know, really well preserved, well learned template or target for what their song is supposed to sound like. Now, our approach has really been to try to under, sort of to, to understand this kind of sensory motor learning behavior, sort of behaviorally and computationally. And one thing that we you know we're always talking about at lab meetings is you know. To what extent is the target, you know, a really a stored memory of you know what he heard his tutor, his father sing five years ago, and that's what he's comparing absolutely everything else to, which seems unlikely to me. It seems unlikely that that's what it is, given that he's heard himself sing the same song tens of thousands of times since then. So I can't back this up, but I bet that the tutor's song itself effectively gets replaced. You know, in what the template, wherever that lives, and whatever it means, by a bird's own rendition of his own singing. Now, if we could do headphones experiments that lasted for you know headf- experiments with headphones that lasted for you know years rather than weeks, we could totally. I mean, I wouldn't want to be that grad student in my lab, um, but uh, we could figure that out. But it's it's sort of an open question at this point. But so it's interesting. I was trying to think about that because. And the difference between auditory feedback and proprioception, because right. it it doesn't have a, a proprioceptive memory of what the uh, uh, the oh. tutor song. Am I? Oh, you are. Sorry, not not the tutor song, but it, but it's totally, you know, fe- yeah, it's totally feasible in my mind that he has a proprioceptive memory of what it feels like to sing his song correctly. Which has been incorporated into that. Could be. Could be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly. I mean, Todd's right. Certainly, that didn't exist the first time he heard it. So yeah, so you're just positing that there's a slow process that combines. It's not crystal. Them. It's just very viscous. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> no, I mean, the, and I'm, yeah, the, I, I get less comfortable with the idea of song, like the term crystallization. The more the more I do this, like well, it's well, there are you can one things you can do, and we've done it a teeny little bit, and no, we haven't really looked at it. You know, the song does drift. Oh yeah. Uh, and it never stops changing. I mean, there's stuff from like geriatric birds are different from adult birds, you know. Yeah, so you could, uh, if you had maybe a, 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 a time scale of what real drift is, right. uh, then you may get an estimate of it, whether it's months or years, yep. Yep. Uh, that you need to do the perturbation. Uh, sure. 
to find out what that just self-correlated drift would be because that would be a reasonable explanation for it. So the, the song goes off, you sing it more often, that's the time scale that you incorporate that into your long-term memory and then you drift and you can't remember where you were anymore. So uh -huh. that's the, your new song. And so if you just measure the long-term drift over years or something, mm -hmm. then you might get a sense, an estimate of what that process, the time scale that process. That would be something. big, big data. Yeah. <laughs> Do they drift? Well, are these these birds that stick around with their parent generation, or like will they drift as much with the tutor song around? Oh, I don't I don't know that anybody's looked just, at they that. They just stop yeah. being tuned to that. Yeah, I, I I would expect that they would stop listening to their parents at around it's sexual happened. maturity. Yeah, no, li yes, literally. <laughs> Yeah. So you, you're interested in various levels of description in the song system, um, one of which is the biomechanical constraints of the voice muscles. You mm -hmm. mentioned some of this with the proprioception, but you're also um, you're just you're trying to connect the, the neurons to song output. Tell us why that's so important. Sure. Okay. So you know, a, a very broad question in motor control is how do networks of, of neurons in, in the brain or in, in the cortex control the control what I'll call the task parameters. So, you know, if you're singing or playing a sport or whatever, you know, your goal is to, you know, sing the right pitch, you know, hit the ball in the correct way in tennis, um, etc. Now, the problem is that you're actually not controlling the ball or the pitch, you're actually controlling a bunch of muscles that are controlling, you know, some stuff that, that controls what the actual task is about. So, you know, there's, and there's a very long history of trying to figure out how patterns of neural activity in the motor system, you know, how does that relate to both, you know, patterns of muscle contraction and also especially, you know, the, the, the behavioral parameters that are being controlled. And what we've done, so, you know, so far, the learning experiments, uh, at least in our published work, you know, our learning experiments have been separate from the neurophysiology. Like, all of our neurophysiology has been in spontaneous song, you know, while the bird has not, you know, been learning anything because of a, you know, because of any manipulation we've done. But of course, what we really want to know, well, one of the things we really want to know is, you know, how are those patterns of neural activity revised during learning? And, you know, something that's important to that, but I think also a really interesting question in its own right, is, you know, how does the, how does, how does neural activity you know, control these trial-by-trial -trial variations in vocal acoustics, um, especially given that that trial-by-trial -trial variability, you know, this is from our stuff and work of lots of other labs, turns out to be really important for learning. So I thought what, uh, I didn't want there to be a pause there. <laughs> so uh, one of the old, you did, you have worked on, human and monkeys, so you you could speak to some of the, okay. the issues that have come up there, but one of the old issues in the motor cortex mm -hmm. was whether upper motor neurons are encoding something that has to do with the task parameter directly sure. or the muscle contraction directly. Yep. Yep. And uh, sometimes people say that it's all been settled, but then <laughs> if you ask somebody else, you find out it's been settled in the opposite direction. Right, right, right. So the the, the, uh, an issue that comes up is sort of in the intermediate yeah. place. How about the l lower motor neuron? We sort of pretend we know right. what it's doing because we assume that all the motor neurons in a motor pool are doing exactly the same thing at the same time. Yeah. But there's evidence that they're not doing all exactly the same thing at the same time mm -hmm. and that motor units might be more engaged in 
one muscle contraction versus another one in the same muscle in a task-dependent way. Yeah, absolutely. Is that possible in, to sure. study in the bird song? Well, we're working towards that. I mean, so, so sort of the, the, the long-standing controversy about motor cortex you're, you're talking about, I mean, that is still a very active debate, and that's an active debate in the control of, you know, a primate arm, which you can model as a couple of sticks and a couple of hinges with a bunch of muscles pulling on. I mean, of course, it's much more complicated than that. But you know, the physics of the human of the the arm are actually better understood than the physics of the the vocal organ. I, th I think it's safe to say that. But I totally agree that you know one of the things that's really important is to understand you know the transformation between motor neuron activity and you know m muscle output broadly construed, both you know the mechanics of contraction and how that how that affects behavior and that's something so we've got this is well the stuff is under review um, anyway so we're very interested in the transformation between um, muscle contraction and acoustics and at the level we've been looking at it so far we're actually really thinking about it in terms of you know EMG record which is you know a bulk signal from the muscle um, we have some stuff where we electrically stimulate single muscles um, etc but something we're really interested in you know we're working on very actively is to try to is to develop um, high-resolution EMG. We want to be able to record, you know, populations of single motor units, um, which is the you know one motor unit being the um, the collection of muscle fibers innervated by a single motor neuron. To look at exactly this question, you know, are you know particular motor units engaged selectively for some tasks or some gestures? Um, one thing I talked about in my seminar is, you know, to what extent does the precise timing of the activation of single motor units matter for control, and in what ways are those pat those firing patterns model modulated during during learning? So yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I get I, I only I got I started to get interested in muscles at the very end of my postdoc, and then it's been a pretty significant focus of my lab. So the vocal apparatus is a little bit more like the hand than it is like the arm. <laughs> yeah, and sure. Uh, so in the hand, uh -huh. there are motor units that contribute when I'm moving two fingers together, and right. other ones that contribute when I'm moving the two fingers independently. Sure, sure. And so the motor units are a little bit task uh, uh, aligned, not yeah. just muscle aligned. Yeah. Maybe that's a, a entering a taking a position in that controversy. And I, don't, I see. And I'm probably not. Well, well yeah. I mean, one. That, but. I mean. Well, I think you're right in some ways. One of the key differences between the hand and the, the vocal organ, though, is that probably what the muscles are doing is controlling the biomechanical parameters of soft tissue that moves passively. I mean, I guess you could, I don't know, it depends where you want to draw, where you want to draw the line. And, I mean, I think it's, you know, we know how to model sticks and hinges, um, I think, to a better extent than we know how to model vocal folds, although there's certainly great work being 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 done there. And, I mean, what I think it's a real strength of the songbird system is that, you know, each bird has, you know, his repertoire of different, just, you know, vocal gestures, and there's a lot of great work quantifying, you know, the acoustics and measuring acoustical differences between those. So, you know, if and when we can get you know high throughput single motor unit EMG, I think there's going to be a lot of really great uh, great questions to be asked there. But so one part, one, one potential advantage and something that I kind of over I don't know, I, I I over rely on <laughs> I guess in the songbird system is that one of the differences if you think about it in terms of relating uh, behavioral output to the to what the neurons have to do uh -huh. is that 
you have at least with monkey arms and stuff, you have all the kinematics. Right. So you may understand hinges and, and right. things, but they take a long time to play out, and they have momentum and all sure. this other kind of stuff that goes on. So, so you have a complex dynamic system. Right. And if yeah. things are really fast and small, and you have to move uh, teeny little muscles and you know change the temp uh, the the tension on teeny little membranes, mm -hmm. then you don't have a lot of that stuff. Like the eyes. Um, sure. The advantage of studying the eyes. Yeah, and I don't know what it is about the hand and how much, how much yeah. those kinds of things are. But you, in some ways, that's that's one of the middle players that people have to argue about, right. about whether you're encoding. Yeah, like how much history dependence is there in the plant, and how much you have to build a model of that, and how much yeah. you're controlling the parameters of the model versus what you have to put into the model to do that. Yeah, and I mean, I, 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 I mean, a we have a collaboration with uh, a guy named Kuhn Elemans and his group in, in Denmark, and he's developed this amazing prep with, you know, he's presented a few times, where, um, you know, you can do high-speed high imaging of a, you know, ex vivo syrinx, so syrinx in a dish, essentially. And yeah, I think, you know, that kind of methodology is really going to help us answer those questions. I mean, like, yeah, it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of small stuff being controlled by small muscles, but I, you know, we'll have to see the extent to which it's you know free of some of the the computational difficulties of uh, arm movements. So one of the things you were sort of, I thought you were making a statement about it a minute ago, but it was I was vague about what the statement okay. was. Is the degrees of freedom of right. the syringeal muscles uh -huh. right? Because that's what makes the hand different from the arm. In right. Some way. So. Are you really thinking that there are not very many degrees of freedom to that muscle? That it's right. No, we think. I think there is a. I think there are a large number of degrees of freedom to the syrinx, and it's it's a. It's actually this is a topic of, of some debate in the in birdsong world right now, is the extent to which um, vocal output is invertible, which is very closely related to the degrees of freedom question. So I think the simplest way to, to describe it is, you know, you are recording a bird making a particular sound, you know, can you invert that? Can you take that and figure out what the control parameters are? You know, whether it's, you know, tension on the vibrating membranes or, you know, muscle contractions, um, et cetera. My, we, we, have, we have some work under review on this. I, I actually think that it's going to turn out that the syrinx is not easily invertible. I think that there's a sufficient number of degrees of freedom such that the brain has a lot of choices about what combination of you know, motor control parameters are used to produce any given sound. And, and, you know, so this is, and this is an idea that you know, you know, goes back to you know, Bernstein. This is a very old idea that that degree of freedom problem is not really a problem at all. In fact, it makes learning much easier. And I mean, you can think of it this way, which is that if you've got a unique set of motor commands that you have to do to produce, you know, whatever behavioral output, that makes it really hard to acquire the behavior. You have to search, exhaustively search the space of possible motor commands to find the one command that will do what you want. On the other hand, if it's a redundant system such that there's a whole subspace, that actually makes your job much easier, you know, makes your job of sort of finding that correct subspace much easier. And then I think it also, you know, especially in a behavior that's sequenced where you've got to go from, you know, syllable A to syllable B to syllable C, if you can produce syllable A anywhere within a given subspace, you can optimize which bit of the subspace you're in to satisfy other constraints, like, you know, the performance of the next syllable. It sounds like primitives. 
almost. Yeah, the, the, yes, there's, there, there's a connection there. Um, so yeah, and I mean, this is, you know, there's a lot of, yeah, this is, this is one of the debates in the songbird world that I'm especially interested in is this question of invertibility and what it means for control. How about birds that are more like, because a ton of birds are pretty tonal. Uh-huh. Uh, so we all like the, in the Finch world. They have all these goofy broadband notes with right. a lot of strange structure and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know how. But some of the spectrograms are just really whistles, right? Right. This really narrow band yeah. thing. And so if you have to produce only kind of a sine wave mm-hmm. and change the frequency, I don't know if that's easier, harder, uh, better. I don't even know why. You mean you mean more like more or less redundant or? Well, or? Uh, yeah, either more or less redundant, or yeah, I guess in uh, uh, more or less invertible. I guess. Sure. Well, there's uh, a couple. I mean, there's a couple of ways to think about it. I mean, so you can think. I mean, so there's been a lot of really great modeling work done where you know, it ter- you can control, you can approximate bird vocal output with a mo- a computational model that only has two control param- or two or three control parameters, which are you know, tension on the membranes, air pressure, and usually there's another, a, a gating term. But anyway. So there's a first question is whether that's and whether, you know, when you're modeling at the level of biomechanical control parameters, by which I mean, you know, tension, air pressure, et cetera, whether it's invertible. Then there's the question, which I think is, you know, in some ways more biological, is it invertible at the level of muscles? You know, you've got 10, you know, whatever, 10-ish muscles that are contributing, contributing to this. So even if you know, a particular vocal output is only achievable with a single combination of air pressure and, you know, membrane tension, et cetera, it could still be redundant because there's, you know, an infinite number of combinations of muscle contraction across these 10 muscles that will, that will get you there. And I, I I can't back that up yet, but I I think that's the way it is, which I think, you know, is really interesting, you know, because that means that, you know, first of all, that the songbird brain has to learn how to navigate this subspace of possible motor commands that it could use to, you know, achieve um, uh, a given output. And also, you know, how does, how does the, you know, the motor area, how do the motor areas of the brain, you know, set up patterns of, of neural activity that allows that to happen? I mean, it requires, you know, on the one hand, things get easier because, you know, you can be anywhere in a given subspace to produce, a, you know, a particular motor output. On the other hand, you've got to coordinate more stuff, you know, broadly speaking. You've got to coordinate, you know, the covariances and stuff like that across muscles. One of the, the oddities of the bird song motor system right. is that the upper motor neuron, if you will, right. uh, doesn't fire in the kind of relationship to movement that it does in human motor cortex. Or, how, how, do you mean, how do you mean? Well, if I make a movement, like a swiping movement with my arm, right. then I can find neurons that are in the arm area that sort of fire in continuous relationship with that movement, and I, they start when that movement starts and they end about the time that movement sure. ends. Okay. It seems to me, and correct me if I'm uh-huh. wrong, that the neurons in the, uh, in RA uh-huh. are firing in bursts that don't have a s- simple relationship to the contractions of the muscles. Well... Is that, is that wrong? Y- yes and no. I mean... So it's definitely the case that RA neurons are really bursty, whereas cortical neurons are, you know, you can approximate them as rate-modulated Poisson spike train. So that, that, that's definitely a difference. I, I don't, I mean, so having spent a lot of time thinking about both arm movements and, and birdsong, I mean, for one thing, 
so the single arm movement paradigm, which has you know done great things for motor control, where you know a monkey or a person starts with their arm in the middle, moves smoothly to a single target, and stops. That is nothing like natural sequenced behavior. I mean, if you had the monkey flailing his arm around doing a you know doing you know the clapping game that kids play this does not translate well to a podcast but that that would be more like the kind of sequenced behavior and you know it would be this you know if you were to record arm muscles during the little clapping game you would find these very complex time varying patterns which i think are probably going to be much more complicated than what you get from sort of the typical center out center out arm movements so the fact that you know the fact that it appears to be so much more complicated in terms of the response. The Actually, I think of it as sort of simpler. I mean, it's, there's this sort of player piano model of it where every cell has its little place. Yeah. And the, and the place corresponds to a particular time during movement, but not sure. a particular uh, a boundary across the movement. Is that wrong? I mean, because well, yeah. some of your stuff is sort yeah. of like that burst led to that sort Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I think it's deterministic in the, well, sort of deterministic in that the, you know, the sound that's produced at time X is, you know, caused by the ensemble of R yeah, around. Okay. Right. But, um, I mean, so for example, I mean, this is, I don't know if this is a very satisfying example, but in our 2008 paper, uh, we showed that if you look across, you know, Imagine there's 500 milliseconds of song where the bird is producing, I don't know, eight different syllables. If you look at the fraction of neurons in RA that are bursting, it oscillates between, I forget, like 40 and 70%. You know, where there's more neurons firing right before a syllable and, you know, fewer neurons firing at the end of or in between, in between syllables. And, you know, the idea that there's, I mean, I don't think that there necessarily should be an, you know, all the neurons are firing right before a syllable happens and none of them are firing at the end because if you look at what the muscles are doing, there's plenty of muscles that are involved in turning off syllables at the end. It's not that there's, and this, you know, this is kind of a pet issue of mine that comes up in lab meetings a lot, just because there's no sound coming out of a bird's beak at a particular instant does not mean that there's no motor control going on. In fact, you know, it takes just as much motor control to stop singing as it does to vocalize. So. Yeah, I mean, I think of it as being, you know, it's a, it's a, the bursting thing, I agree with you, is different, you know, qualitatively and quantitatively from cortex, but, you know, I think that in terms of, you know, what the neural activity is like in, in R8 or in birdsong, it's probably more like, you know, a sequence, you know, any other sequence behavior. Okay, so then, then I will do what people do with the <laughs> motor cortex, and yeah. then say, I imagine all of the, these neurons firing in this pattern. Sure. And now I go down to the motor neurons, right. and I'm going to see basically an image of that on the motor yep. neurons. And that's what we expect to see. So the, this neuron is bursting, right. this motor neuron is bursting, too. Now mm -hmm. some other neuron may also make that motor neuron burst, because sure. there's some convergence. Yeah. But basically, uh, that thing is acting to, to impose a pattern on the motor neurons that is going to be adequate to make this sound. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, I... I, I the motor neurons which live in the brain, you know, for the syrinx which live in the brainstem are quite inex very difficult to access. We actually haven't tried, and I know a lot of people who have tried and, and gotten frustrated. It was just a thought. Well, no, 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 but I, I think it's, we have to do that, and that really is, I mean, I mentioned that we're, we're developing these technologies for single motor unit EMG. That's partly because we're interested in single motor unit EMG, and partly because I think it's, you know, our best shot at figuring out what the motor neurons are, are doing. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it could be... I mean, this question of whether sort of the downstream area is 
doing a relatively simple integration of bursting inputs from the upstream area. That is also, I think, an interesting and open question in RA itself. So RA gets these precisely timed you know, bursts coming from HVC, which is you know, the nucleus that provides it with its input. And you know, there are plenty of, you know, plenty of people think, and there's good supporting evidence, that it could be that the RA neurons are just adding up those bursts. On the other hand, there's plenty of inter, you know, connectivity within RA, so I think it's equally plausible that you know, dynamics within RA are going, you know, that RA neurons are not just sort of obedient to whatever their bursting inputs are from HVC. Similarly, you know, and I'm less familiar with what the wiring looks like inside of the brainstem nucleus, but you know, it doesn't have to be the case that the, the motor neurons are just adding up, you know, Sort of doing a simple summation. Well, certainly not all that they're doing, right? Because yeah. when when you leech an RA, the bird is not mute. Right. Like yeah. it still calls and oh, yeah. has lots of uh, things yeah. at the at the local at uh, the small level that looks a lot like it does for song. Sure, it and I mean, it's, put yeah. them together in a big long thing. Right. So there's a big you know there's a big network down there for making vocalizations and right. series of vocalizations. Yeah. In terms of repeated call strings. Yeah, and I mean, it's not all learned and right. all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I mean I mean one of the things that I mean this is something that's a bit particular to vocal control is that you know these. The muscles that you need for for vocalizing are also for breathing, you know. And one of the things I think is neat about the Songbird system is that you've got this, you know, amazing learning and motor control network up in, you know, in the forebrain and basal ganglia. That when the bird is singing, hijacks all the muscles that are, you know, used, you know, used for breathing, basically. Um, uh, you know, and that that goes for the muscles in the syrinx too. They're also contracting um, in time to the to the respiratory rhythm. So you know. And you know, if you lesion RA, if you lesion you know, the output of the nucleus of the song system, the bird can breathe just fine. So you know, what is it about the patterns coming from the song system that enable it to complete? And you know, this is highly relevant to human speech as well. I mean, I'm I'm taking you know, I'm not doing my normal quiet. I don't know how normal it is. You know, respiratory rhythm right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, so thinking sort of thinking about the pat, you know, how is it that one neural system takes over the function of another one to execute some behavior, I think is really interesting. Awesome. Thank okay. you so much for being with us. Right, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been lots of fun. Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks.